It's another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Silva, here on this Sunday, August the 28th, 2016. Of course, if you want to check out the show, go to MetsmerizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and check us out on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcasting service you desire. I uh, hope everybody's doing well here on this Sunday as uh, the summer's pretty much almost over, a week to Labor Day. As I've been saying, it's amazing how quickly the season has gone by. I remember our first show together uh, just before opening night, and it seems like just yesterday. So almost a season in the books here as part of the Talking Mets, you know, hosting the Talking Mets podcast and being part of the MetsmerizeOnline.com community. So it's been a blast. And um, Tim Donner, who joined us a few weeks ago right before the trade deadline, is going to be joining me in just a little bit. Uh, Tim is part of MetsmerizeOnline.com. And I brought him back because we had a nice conversation right before the deadline. A lot happened. Jay Bruce came over. Uh, obviously, Jonathan Neese, that hasn't had as much of an impact. And, and the Mets, you know, where they are and, and what I'm about to kind of set up here, I wanted to get his take. Because um, really, we got to vet this thing out, this wild card race. It's, you know, less about guests now, more about opinion and um, and really where I see where this team stands. I think that's where I could bring you some entertaining analysis here right now. But let me uh, before we get to Tim and he'll he'll like I said he'll be on in a few minutes. Let me um, let me start out by saying a week ago I had uh, James flipping on and we pretty much put the Mets dead and buried. I and mean, I'll give them credit; they survived the road trip. They took two out of three in St. Louis. They wound up splitting the series in San Francisco, and after a one and four start, they go five and five, which is okay. Really, when where they're at, they needed to probably go six and four and really show you something. But they survived an August West Coast trip which is always, or Midwest, West Coast trip, which is always important. It's very difficult. These are never easy. Even if you're uh, uh, the best record in the league, surviving those trips at this time of the year, players are tired. You're trying to get your, 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 your last gear to, to push for the final pennant drive. They don't call it the dog days of August for nothing. So the Mets survive. And then they come home to play the Phillies, and they pretty much dominate the Phillies through two games. And I was fully prepared to come on today and say, you know, maybe I jumped the gun. Yeah, this wild card race is a muck. I mean, it's a it's a slog of teams here with Pittsburgh and Miami and St. Louis and the Mets. And uh, who knows on day in and day out basis, you know, there's just so many teams, you know, to, to what the Mets came in today, getting basically three out of those four teams to lose. That's a pretty good day when you have four teams in front of you, which is what the Mets have. But then the Mets go out today and really have opportunities early in the ball game to blow the doors off the Phillies and head towards a sweep. And, and, and you know what? I'll give a pass. You know, Cespedes, the quad is a little tight. Walker, the back, I, I understand he's had some issues. You don't want guys to just go out there on a Sunday, push themselves, and then get hurt, especially with Cespedes with the quad, although it really is convenient that, you know, here we, they really need him, the Mets. And we're doing a maintenance day here on a Sunday against the Phillies. But with all that said, the Mets still had enough to win. And I'm really – I'll start off by saying before I get to where I question whether this really is a wild card race, the media's got to lose some of the narrative out there that the Mets are this depleted injured team. Like right away I see New York Times sports. Here's the headline. Depleted Mets lose to the Phillies. And, and I go down and I see a quote from Collins here. This is via Mark Carrig of Newsday, at Mark Carrig on Twitter. And he uh, – when they, they, they talk about how now they have Robert Giselman, uh, they've got Montero starting tomorrow, and then they got Seth Lugo, and Collins goes, they probably haven't set three guys out in a row like this ever. I mean, 
I'm tired of the whole, oh, my God, we're so depleted. It's such a false narrative. This element has showed a lot today, and I'll get to where how important these guys are because this is where Sandy Alderson and his, his front office has got to show that they are who they said they were back in 2010. But here's the thing. The Mets came out today. They didn't get any big hits. They didn't blow the doors off a Phillies team that was ready to give them a game and get out of here. And then they wind up Collins again, as he normally does, a day late and a dollar short when it comes to the bullpen, leaves Gazelman in too long, brings in Montero. And I really tried, guys. I really tried to, to give this Montero a chance. But this guy is your prototypical live arm with a 50-cent head. All he is is a thrower. He'll never be a good reliever. He's a thrower. And he's emotional. And he's kind of a fake tough guy, like the manager, to tell you the truth. And he goes out there, 5-1 Phillies, ball game over, not even a chance for the Mets to put up a fight. That's what bothers you. They don't even put up a fight. Bing, bang, boom, go home. Mets lose a game. Pirates now move a little bit closer to uh, the Cardinals. I think they're a game out in the loss column. The Mets stay four back of St. Louis. They're a game back of Miami. Uh, This is where I have to question if this team is legitimately in a wild card race. Because when you have this muck of four teams, I mean, look at the Yankees. They're, they're in a similar situation. Got all these teams in front of you, every night, even if you win, you have to hope two or three teams lose. Now, they do have the Marlins that they play, uh, what, seven, seven times now in, in, in the next month. So, okay, there they could control their fate. They don't play the Cardinals anymore. They don't play the Pirates anymore. So I'll tell you what. I might even just give it. We'll see what Tim Donner has to say. I might give him a little bit of a pass and say, show me something in this Marlins series, because if they don't come out of this Marlins series ahead of Miami, and they better stay ahead of Miami the rest of the year, forget it. I don't want to hear about a wild card race, because now at least you got the Marlins behind you. You could control yourself and not worry about them on a nightly basis, whether they win or lose. You win your game, you're good. doesn't matter what Miami does. And then you got Pittsburgh and St. Louis in front of you. Pittsburgh, who sold off their closer to Washington in front of them. So I'm really tired of those two things. The narrative about them, that they get injuries, they've been injured, they've had some bad luck, they got enough to win. They've got enough to win. Now, as far as the young starters, two points on that. First one on Montero. Very rarely, as a prospect fails, you get an opportunity. And Montero has really, really disappointed. Here's a guy that I thought was going to be better than Zach Wheeler. He's a guy that in 2013, after he was in the, uh, the Futures game, guy who threw strikes, um, you know, controlled the, the game, did not get behind hitters. It was positioned as a guy, I thought, almost like Doug Fister, maybe with a little bit more swings and misses where you, he would go out and, um, and be able to, to, to not put runners on base. Give me a guy who doesn't walk batters. I don't need the 10 strikeouts a game. Don't walk batters. Give me six or seven and keep me in the ball game. Give me seven innings, two runs. That's what I was positioned. That's what he was positioned as. And he even had a good year in 2013 at Vegas. I mean, you know, Vegas, you always kind of have the, the inflation ERA a little bit over three, still under three walks per nine, a little less than a strikeout per nine innings, so you know, almost eight. So he was, he was primed. And then he came up, and he's been nothing but that at the big league level. He's a guy who almost walked five batters per nine innings. And since he made his debut in 2014, he's been bad. He's a guy that... Um, uh, has 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 bloated walks where he's almost walked uh, as many as four batters per nine uh, for Vegas. Um, his strikeout rate is still there, but his ERA has, has has risen to almost as much as five. 
He's been sent down to double A, and he's been pitching for Binghamton. And I'm guessing, even though the competition level isn't horrible, part of that was to get him out of the Pacific Coast League. You're hearing some good things about him. He's been pitching better. And now he has an opportunity tomorrow. And he's facing Jose Fernandez, which is a tough task, to really put himself back on the radar. In a season where, with Matt Harvey going down, with Steven Matz going down, with DeGrom and Syndergaard needing to be skipped, guys like Seth Lugo and Robert Gazelman, who were not on the radar two years ago, have gotten starts. They brought back Jonathan Neese, a scrap heap guy, a guy they couldn't wait to get rid of this winter before they went to Montero. So here's his chance for redemption. Now, does he have to win? It's going to be a lot to ask. I mean, Fernandez could go out very likely and shut the Mets down tomorrow, and it doesn't matter what Montero does. You can't win zero to negative one. But he's got to show you that he can keep him in the ball game. He goes out there and gets lit up tomorrow. Your second chance here at winning a spot on his team. And this is a very well, this is a team with a lot of winnable spots right now in the rotation because you got guys that need to be skipped. You got Matt Harvey who's out. I don't know how much longer you're going to, you know, Matt's with the shoulder and chips and all that stuff. So he has an opportunity. With that point, you know, with the Gazelman and the Lugo and, and the starters who have been impressive, I mean, the Mets might have some, some little gems down there. Not everybody has to come, out, come up and be Matt Harvey. It's okay to be a solid number three starter, a guy who gives you innings and keeps you in the ballgame. That's what a lot of these teams have. Not everyone's going to be an ace, and you're not going to hold on to all these guys. So you need guys to come up with the pipeline. And no, you know what? None of these guys, you know, Syndergaard even has at times, has been uh, uh, Sandy Koufax. They've all shown that they are very good, but they still got a long way to go. So there's nobody here that, oh, my God, you know, no one's had a 1985 Dwight Gooden season here. With all due respect, or even the 1988 David Cohn season, with all due respect. They're very good. They're very good, don't get me wrong, but there's no reason why a Gazelman or a Lugo can't sneak into the conversation here. And that's really my point. This is where Sandy Alderson's regime, who benefited so much from Omar Manaya, remember, the Grom and Harvey and those guys are uh, Manaya guys. Sandy Olison used R.A. Dickey, an Omar Manaya guy, to acquire Syndergaard. Now, they developed Syndergaard. They developed the Grom. They helped develop, to a certain degree, Harvey. But those were Omar Manaya guys. I mean, when the Mets went to the World Series this October, Manaya was out there taking bows as if he, it was his team. It, it kind of was, but it wasn't, but it was. A little silly, Manaya trying to get revisionist history. He had his own issues. But now this is where these assets in this organization – and this, and I still remember that press conference back in October of 2010 when Sandy Olsen came on and they were going to be healthier and they were going to be uh, looking for undervalued assets. They were going to use analytics. This wasn't going to be a fly by the seat of your pants, emotional, let me see where things go, Omar Manaya regime. And now this is where these guys have to step up. This is what it's about. I don't want to hear about it. Guys, this is what baseball is all about. Guys need to step up. Show me that you belong. So as much as you say depleted roster, these are guys that they drafted that they're expecting to contribute and they're expecting to use to compete. I'm tired of the excuses, guys. I'm really tired of it. So to me, right now, I'm still not really sold. I'm trying to – I don't want to be the Debbie Downer here. But how is this a while – does this feel like a team that could seize the moment? I keep hearing about, oh, they're going to be playing the Twins and the Braves and the Phillies. That's loser talk, man. They, those are teams they should be. You know, you want to make the playoffs and back in? You're going to go to L.A. and beat the Dodgers? 
You're going to go to San Francisco and beat Madison Bumgarner and the Giants in a playoff game? And the way you're going to do it is by backing in, playing lousy teams? I mean, the schedule is the schedule, but you guys are like, well, let's use this opportunity to, pull, you know, to, to, it's like bumper, uh, bumper bowling. The loser talk, the fan base around this team just drives me crazy. There's so much loser talk. And the next four games, listen, I'm going to tell you why. They botched these next four games. I don't want to – I'm not coming back. Like I, I told you this. I'm kind of like trying to say, okay, they could do it. And part of me still doesn't want them to make the playoffs because I really don't want Collins back. I think he's such a big issue. You saw it again today, leaving Gazelman. I just – I don't think he has a feel of the game. I think they'd be so much better with Wally Backman. They really would. I, I know it may never happen, but I really wish they'd give the guy a year. And I think you guys would see what I, what I mean. But, you know, there's so much to that. And I'm going to get to a bunch of stuff with Tim Donner. This, this rest, and every time the starters have a bad game, how they hurt, it drove me nuts. Now, Keith Hernandez did have a story last night about a conversation he had with David Cohn, which got me thinking. Um, we'll get into a little bit about Jay Bruce. You know, Jay Bruce, let's lay off him a little bit. Uh, the transition is a, is, is a difficult one, especially coming over midseason with one team all these years. Not everybody's suspicious. A lot of these midseason deals sometimes don't come to fruition the way you think. You're asking a guy to change what's been an everyday routine and lifestyle with one organization and all of a sudden on a snap change and be who he was in Cincinnati. So let's give him a little bit of a break. There's, 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 you, know, you need him to step up, but this has been a hard transition for him, and, and sometimes that's not to be totally unexpected. Can the Mets get to that 87-88 win situation? I don't know, and is that really going to be enough? I don't think so. I really don't, so we'll see. But anyway, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when I return, Tim Donner's going to join me. He'll get into some of the things that I just talked about. Um, but my main theme is, this, is this really a wild card race? And it's really time for the Sandy Alderson impact. The guys that his regime have drafted, let them come up, let them prove themselves. This is why you brought this guy in. Let's see what Tim thinks about this. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can always listen to us at MetsMorizeOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. Check us out on SoundCloud, iTunes, and whatever podcasting service you desire. We'll be right back. Got to bring up as dribble Cabrera. Cabrera hits one deep to left center field, headed back toward the wall. It's out of here! As dribble Cabrera raging hot, a two-run homer to put the Mets in front. Two home runs last night, number 16 tonight, and the Mets lead 2-1. to one. And he launches one, deep left field, down the line, got it for space fair, it's out of here! Three-run bomb, Ioannis Cespedes, and it's 5-1 to one New York. And he socks that one to right center field. Back goes Herrera, near the wall, it's out of here! A grand slam for Kelly Johnson! A pinch hit grand slam. The Mets' second grand slam of the series makes it 11 to 1 New York. And he cracks that one to deep right center field. Herrera back to the warning track near the wall. It's out of here. The Mets hit four home runs for the second straight night and the tenth time this season. And now it's 12 to 1. We're back, Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, August the 28th. And joining me from MetsMorizedOnline.com is Tim Donner. Tim has uh, been a nationally syndicated radio host with former GM Sid Thrift. He contributes to MetsMorizedOnline.com. 
And uh, he's down in the D.C. area following, covering the Mets, and joining me again. And you heard him a few weeks ago right before the deadline. I figured let's bring him back and uh, welcome him to the program. Tim, thanks for joining us here on this Sunday in uh, what, about unofficial, the unofficial end of summer is about a week away. So time flies when you're having fun. Well, your uh, your gain is uh, as Struble Cabrera's loss, because as, as we were discussing offline, uh, the last time I was on, it was a Sunday game, and a Struble Cabrera got injured. It looked like he'd be out the rest of the season. Somehow, uh, the injury wasn't as serious as we thought for the first time all year. And then right. here we are again, what is it, a month later, and it's a Sunday game, and Cabrera gets injured again. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know what? I, I certainly listen. I like Cabrera. I'm not putting a hit out on the guy. Look, if it was Terry Collins getting hurt, maybe then you'd have something there with me. But um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it is a little bit of Groundhog Day, another injury. Now, look, I'll start there with you, Tim. So let me really summarize here how I, I went about it in the open. Uh, I was fully prepared to kind of have a theme today of the Mets after last week and really the week before, where I said, look, this is really not happening. They're going to go out on the West Coast. They're going to have a lousy trip, and it looked like that was going to happen. Then they rebounded after the 1-4 and four start. They had a 5-5 five and five trip, including 2 out of 3 in St. Louis, who's ahead of them, which was a, was, was a big situation. They come home. They bludgeon the Phillies the first couple of games. And I'm like, all right, good chance they win today. They sweep the Phillies. Now you know, they're kind of pulling me back in here, so now I look bad a week later. And I'll tell you what, this just doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel like a team – as much as the math shows that they have all these games with the Marlins, they have all these games against sub-500 teams the rest of the way, this doesn't feel like a team that's serious about being in the wild-card race. It's a bully offense, it looks like. You saw a lot of that, the commercial I just had with all the four home runs yesterday. But when it comes down to early today, when they needed some execution to get a 2-3-4-0 lead without the home run, they couldn't do it. Uh, they fall behind 5-1 with some suspect managing by Terry Collins. They go down, bing, bang, boom, to the Phillies. Look, they took two out of three, but to me, it just doesn't feel like this is a serious wild card contender. Your thoughts, because I'm probably not going to get a lot of good feedback on that when the uh, the folks at MetsmerizedOnline.com listen to this. Well, I don't think they are a good wild card contender. I, I said it the last time I was on, and I've said it for a good long time now, three months, that it seems like a season that just ain't happening. It seems like a season like 1987. It seems like a season where they're so beset by injuries. I mean, look at it now that for months we were complaining, and rightfully so, about the fact that six out of the eight opening day starters had been injured for extended periods of time. Now they finally get the offense essentially healthy, and now you're in a stretch where Robert Gesellman and Seth Lugo and Rafael Montero uh, and perhaps Inoa, guys like this that were expected to be, you know, maybe sitting in the bullpen in September for mop-up roles are now playing critical roles. So now the injuries have turned to the pitching staff. Now, I look. It looks like Matt's is going to start Thursday. That's a good thing. So they need him back. We hope that DeGrom can miss one start and be back to what he was before his god-awful back-to-back starts uh, over the last 10 days. A really damaging one was when he had the 4 nothing lead over the Giants and couldn't hold it. 
um, and gave up the home run to Bumgarner, all that. But they did turn it around after that. But at this point, you know, the rotation, which was almost certain to be their their strength throughout the entire season, the thing that they could always fall back on. I mean, Wheeler's not coming back. Harvey is gone for the season. Syndergaard has pitched great, but he's still dealing with some bone chips. Let's assume that nothing goes wrong with that, that he can pitch through whatever pain he's had for the rest of the year. If you don't get DeGrom and Matt's back, there's no point in even thinking about a wild card because you can afford. I mean, you can afford a rotation without Harvey and Wheeler if you've got you've got your big you, you you've got your big three young studs plus Cologne. You can afford a fifth guy who's like a Gaselman or like a Montero or like an Inoa or or like a, a Lugo. You can afford one guy in there, but you can't afford more than that. That said, uh, none of these other teams they're chasing are, are very good either. I mean, I fear the Pirates and I fear the Marlins. I don't fear the Cardinals uh, for sure because I think the Cardinals, I mean, they can't even win at home. I mean, they lost two out of three to the, the Oakland A's at home this weekend, so they don't scare me. The Giants don't particularly scare me, although they've got, you know, the Giants are the Giants, and it's an, and it's an even-numbered year, so you've got, to, you've got to be concerned. But, no, it doesn't seem like a year where it's really happening for them, and yet these other teams, they don't show a lot more promise than the Mets do either. So who really knows what to expect? I can tell you one thing, though. Today is a perfect example, this 5-1 to loss to the Phillies. Uh, they are – they must have Cespedes in the They're a different team without Ioannis Cespedes in the lineup. I mean, his mere presence, not to mention his performance, makes all the difference. I can't think of many, if any, teams. I mean, maybe the Nationals with Daniel Murphy. But I can't think of a team that's more dependent on one offensive player than the Mets are on Ioannis Cespedes. And, and look, it's a tough spot. I know the quads are tricky. You don't want them out for another 15 to 20 days at this point. I know they're being cautious. But Cespedes at this point, and he's been here now a full calendar year and played pretty much 162 games over a full, you know, between last year and this year calendar year, is as a dynamic of a power hitter as they've had. I'll compare him right now. He's as dynamic as Strawberry was in his prime, as dynamic as Piazza was in his prime. Now, whether or not that he stays here long enough to be put in the pantheon with those guys, that's a different story. But it really, this whole, and I'll get into this whole rest thing in a minute because it just seems like there's always maintenance going on versus playing to win with this team. But anyway, this is a key when you talk about Gazelman and Lugo and Montero. I said in the open, very rarely when you've had the kind of bumpy start to a career that uh, Rafael Montero has had do you have a chance of redemption? Now, the redemption is a, is a real damned if you do situation against Fernandez. So even if he pitches his heart out in the game of his life, he may lose tomorrow. But he has a chance to put himself back in the conversation because in a season with no Matt Harvey, uh, with guys like DeGrom and, and Syndergaard uh, being skipped, Matt's on the DL, the fact that Lugo and Jonathan Nice was brought back, and Gazelman are getting starts, and Montero's not. is a big indictment on Montero, who got sent down to double-A. Now, that might be because of the whole Vegas situation. But now is the time. This is, you know, I said 
Omar Minaya took a lot of bows last October when this team made the World Series because a lot of those guys were drafted. Mats, Harvey, DeGrom, Syndergaard was acquired with one of his assets. Sandy Olsen did, you know, he had a barren farm system, but he had some real gems that they de- developed. Now you're asking Sandy Alderson to take on the responsibility of the guys that he, his staff, his front office drafted and tried to develop, trying to save this season. And that's why they brought him in. That's where the whole turnover, the, the Podesta's not here anymore, but that was part of what he was here for. The, the fact that now you're asking, you know, your guys have to step up. So you could sit here and say, woe is me, oh, they're so injured. Well, that's why you have depth. You know, not everybody's going to have the hype of a Matt Harvey coming up or a Syndergaard or what have you. But maybe Seth Lugo's a nice number three starter that in three years, we're like, damn, that guy's good. Remember a guy named Rick Reed? He didn't have a lot of hype. He was a damn good starter. Uh, the same thing well, with Gazelman. He looked yeah, like he had I good would, stuff. These guys I, are not would, bad. These are not scrubs that we're, they're putting out there. Time for them to step up. It's important. And it's going to be an indictment of Sandy Alderson's front office if they can't plug the gap right now. Well, look, uh, let, lest we forget, Jacob deGrom, when he came up, was a guy they were going to throw into the bullpen and maybe maybe put him into long relief, maybe keep him up, maybe give him emergency start. Uh, and then they'd send him back to AAA. He wasn't considered an A-level prospect, although admittedly with DeGrom, the problem was that he had all those other young studs around him, which drew the attention away from him. So, But he snuck up on us. Uh, DeGrom, Jacob has turned out to be far better than anybody envisioned. He's one of these guys that somehow – it took him coming to the majors to turn into the kind of pitcher that he could become. We have to hope that this is the case with Rafael Montero. I mean, let's not forget, Mike, it was only a few years ago when many Met fans said, Rafael Montero will be little Pedro. And they didn't mean Pedro Beato or Pedro no. Estas. and Pedro no. Martinez. They thought that this thought was a guy. I thought he was going to be better than Wheeler. I thought he was going to be better. He's a guy that didn't walk people. He seems to be, you know, a guy like Doug, I hate to compare him because I'm not saying he pitches like Doug Fister, but a guy like Doug Fister I like. Throw strikes, don't walk anybody, get in, give you seven innings, two runs, there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, is he going to strike out 15 guys? No, but I don't need that. And he's been nothing, that was what he was advertised coming up. He's been the exact opposite his whole career. Exact opposite. No, it's, it's true, but I think Montero has new life by going to Binghamton. I mean, look, you know, the, the the optimistic spin on this is that some guys just get spooked by pitching in Las Vegas, and we can go off on the tangent of how badly this franchise needs to get out from under Las Vegas as the AAA affiliate. But it's possible he got spooked by being at Las Vegas, and being at Binghamton in a more normal baseball atmosphere has helped Montero. I mean, I don't know. Look, he came up, uh, and when he first came up, he was known as a guy who would throw strikes, didn't walk anybody, excellent control within the strike zone. And he proceeded to be as wild as you could imagine for a young pitcher. And it was shocking because here's a guy where control was his, you know, that was his calling, control. And he never demonstrated that control because he didn't have confidence in his stuff once he got but, uh, I mean, look, uh, Montero has a big shot here. I mean, because if he can throw a decent six innings, two runs, three runs, 
not walk too many guys. I mean, he may get a chance to be a fifth starter because they've tried Logan Verrett. That hasn't worked. They tried Gaselman, who pitched six good innings in today's game and did a nice emergency stint when Nice got injured a few days ago. Uh, right. Gaselman, you know, but he's he he's not been considered an A-level prospect. Lugo has pitched well. You could throw him in there. But the point is that here we are approaching September, Mike, and we're talking about guys who weren't even on the radar when the season began. So in a number of ways, it would be a, a major accomplishment to even make it to the postseason when you're reliant on, on this many guys who were never supposed to see the light of day in the major leagues. And and I'll tell you, I was almost—I hate to say I was prophetic because this is not really a big prediction. I said to everybody when you came on, I've been saying it for months. We all oh, the Mets are decimated by injuries. You need eight to ten starters to get through a season. I just—I named off team after team, including the Royals who won the World Series last year. And sure enough, now they're up to eight pitchers making starts. So this should not be a surprise. The good news is, it looks like they have a little bit of depth. Let me throw something out. So I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm a little conflicted about one thing I was going to talk about today. But then I heard a story by Keith Hernandez, which I don't know if you get the broadcast where you are with the uh, the Mets yes. feed. But yes. last night he told a story about having dinner with you know he name dropped Rajel Bear that he's hanging out Rajel Bear in Sag, Sag Harbor. But David Cohn was at the dinner too, and they were talking about rest and pitching. And Cohn basically said, to paraphrase, "Look, Keith, uh, you know Degrom and all these guys who need rest. The days of of young pitchers like David Cohn throwing 140, 150, 160, they're over." Um, they're not conditioned to do that. And maybe that was a little bit much because uh, you could look back and say maybe that wasn't smart, but there's got to be somewhere in between. And Cohen said, look, when I got older, when he, and it didn't matter when he was young, though. When he got older, when he was in his early to mid-30s, Joe Torre with the Yankees might give him, you know, skip him a start, give him one you know, start every right. eight days. And he said it, would, it was like, almost like he was back and he got that last zip yes. for April. And I'm saying to myself, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense to, to me to a certain degree. But what I don't like is every time these guys, you know, even if they give up like six innings, three runs, and it's not the best start in the world, they're like, oh, there must be something wrong. It must be the bone chip. Or, you know, even the news yeah. I hear, DeGrom must be hurt. He had back-to-back bad outings. Guys, go and look at Doc Gooden's career, Roger Clemens' career. Not only did they have one bad outing sometimes, they had multiple, they had bad months. They had bad halves of a season by their standards doesn't mean if you get clocked that you're hurt. It's gotten absurd. And to me, there's got to be – I'm playing junior psychologist here. There's got to be an effect with these pitchers where anytime there's a little adversity, oh, you know, I might need some rest now. I mean, come on. I'm not well, saying look, that the, the rest is bad. Cone made a point that's really well put. But, guys, come on. These are not class causes. Ironically, you know who we can blame for this to some degree is the, exactly. arguably the greatest manager in Mets history, Gil Hodges. He was the one who first came up with the five-man rotation with the, the late 60s, early 70s Mets until his untimely demise. He's the one that came up with the five-man rotation. And later on, we added in the pitch counts. And when you, when you put the five-man rotation with the expectation of four days rest all the time, together with the obsession with pitch count and the velocity that you're 
seeing in pitchers these days where even your fourth or fifth starter might throw 93, 94 miles an hour, whereas in the old days they were, they were guys who probably threw 88, maybe 86, maybe 90 at most miles an hour. Uh, there's always the pitch count. There's always the amount of rest they've had. And there's an obsession with this. And you know who tried to change this back, and he was in the process of doing it before he was let go in an organizational shakeup, was Nolan Ryan, of all people, who was part of that first five-man rotation that Gil Hodges put together in the late 60s. And when he went to Texas to serve as president of the Texas Rangers, his intent was to roll his pitchers into higher pitch counts to get them used to, to throwing 120 pitches in the minors so that when they got to the majors, they wouldn't be thinking about rest, they wouldn't be thinking about pitch counts. He tried to turn the clock back in some sense, but it was him alone, and he was eventually let go by the Rangers, and so we're back to you know a guy like, like, a guy like DeGrom, Right. Who, uh, I mean, look, he throw he throw ninety five miles an hour, on average. A guy like Syndergaard, ninety nine, a hundred miles an hour. We saw saw him hit that several times in Saturday's game against the Phillies, as usual. Uh, these guys uh, now, if they're if he's throwing ninety nine miles an hour in the seventh inning, well, you're immediately thinking, well, he must be getting tired. We need to. We need to take him out for the eighth inning. I mean, the expectation is that these guys are only going to go seven innings. And the velocity is so high. The expectation of injury is so high. The number of Tommy John surgeries, we see them on the Mets. Uh, right. Everyone right. Everyone in that rotation except Syndergaard has had Tommy John. We see all of that, and suddenly pitchers have become far more fragile or perceived as far more fragile than they were back when you and I were growing up. Yeah, and and look, I don't mean to sound like an old fart here, but I even look at the 80s Mets, and I'm like, you know, Darling has said it. Wasn't healthy all the time. Not every time he took the mound was healthy. I mean, those guys had injuries right. too. Aguilera was injured. Darling, I mean, he was a thumb. Sid used to have injuries all the time. Gooden even had a shoulder problem. Okita, ulnar nerve problems. So all those guys went through it. Anyway, here's where I, I – let's just do some simple Mets math. Because i got to be fair, a few years ago when I was on ESPN Radio, I did Yankees math. When the Yankees were trying to make this comeback in 2013 with the wild card race, and I kind of broke down the math, and I'm like, guys, they haven't played at this level all year. So let's do some simple Mets math here together, because there are going to be people who are going to say that we're out of our gourd. Mets are 66 and 64 right now. Um, and if you want to say that 88 wins is the barometer for making the wild card, which I'm not sure if that's going to be enough. That means the Mets have to go 22 and 10. That means the Mets, who haven't played 688 ball all probably what, first month of the season, maybe they played at that level. They have to play 688 ball when they've been playing at, at best, 500 since May 1st. The math just doesn't add up. Unless you're going to tell me these these teams are going to fall back into the 83-84 range for the wild card. I have a hard time believing that. I really well, do. Well, I'm, I'm somewhere in between, Mike. I don't know that they're going to have to win 88. I think 86 might – I think 83 or 84 is a little low. I think 86 might be enough when you consider this collection of teams 
the Cardinals, the Marlins. It's still six twenty five ball. That's six twenty five ball. That they haven't played that in a long time. Uh, here's the time. way they they have to look at it the rest of the way. They have to look at it that that eighty six wins might be enough. Eighty seven uh, would be knocking on the door. Eighty eight would definitely get it done. They need to look at this that they need to win two out of every three games the rest of the way. They have what thirty four games left. I mean, they need to win two out of every three games the rest of the way. If they do that, I'm confident that they will get a wild card game. If they don't, there's too many teams ahead of them uh, for for them to realistically believe uh, that they can get that far. And ironically, and I'll now I'll this. I'll throw this. This next four games, which starts with the Montero start tomorrow. They got to jump ahead of the Marlins. Like they, it is a thing. Every night this weekend, you saw why this is so bad. It's not just them and one other team. You got to hope that the Cardinals lose. You got to hope that the Pirates lose. You got to hope that the Marlins lose. The days that the Pirates play the Cardinals the rest of the way, somebody's going to win. Uh, right. Maybe the Cubs could help them a little bit, but the Cubs eventually, when they clinch, is probably going to start sitting guys. And inevitably, teams that clinch get into that little lull, and they they may play crappy for uh, a week or two, you got to at least get ahead of the Marlins so that you could say, all right, we control that now. Because the Pirate Cardinal thing is so out of their control, they don't play those guys. If they played them again, I'd say, okay. But they don't play them, and that's what concerns me. Because well, there's look, too they, many things that have to happen. I don't really think it's their year. It doesn't feel like their year. It feels like a 1987 year. It feels like a year after a kind of year, and yet at the same time, Mike, if you figure that if you assume that Mats will be okay, that he can pitch through uh, his shoulder troubles, that DeGrom can skip a start and be refreshed, a la the Keith Hernandez story with David Cohn, that at skipping a start he can be fresh and back to the DeGrom that he was for, for five or six starts before these last two disastrous ones. If they get these guys healthy and they can keep the offense healthy, with a schedule replete with the Minnesota Twins and the Atlanta Braves and the Philadelphia Phillies and the Cincinnati Reds, the really easy schedule that they have the rest of the way and the fact that neither the Carlins, uh, the Cardinals, the Marlins, or the Pirates are exactly world beaters, they really have no excuse to not at least slip in to the second wild card position. So on the one hand, it doesn't seem like they're here. Uh, on the other hand... Assuming that Mats and DeGrom can stay healthy through September, they don't have a whole lot of excuse for not at least making a second wild card. By the way, Tim Donner is joining me. Tim, you can check him out on MetsBarriesOnline.com. Uh, he's had his own radio show uh, as well with the uh, the late Sid Thrift. Uh, let's move on to a topic here. I didn't get to this in the open, but I kind of feel for the guy, and I know that he's not making a great first impression, but deadline deals are tough especially for a guy like Jay Bruce that knew one team, one routine for the better part of almost uh, eight, nine, ten years. And he gets traded to New York in the middle of the pennant race and is expected to pick up a year after Cespedes came here and basically just say, hey, you know, this is my team and took up this team on his, on his back to the postseason. Not everybody can do that. And I think a lot of the fans forget that the transition – of what happens July 31st to August 1st, from a human perspective, the fact that these guys now have to find a new place to live, to rent, the family upheaval, 
you know, this is their job. They get paid a lot of money to do it. There's no doubt. But that's why when you make deadline deals, historically, not all of them work out. Not all these guys play to the level that you expect. Not everybody is like Cespedes, who came over and made an impact. I mean, a few years ago, Mark Teixeira got traded from uh, Atlanta to Anaheim, and he had a nice impact. But that doesn't always happen. And I'm not ready to give up on Jay Bruce. I certainly think Jay Bruce is struggling right now. Um, and I'm not sure how much he's going to contribute the rest of the season. Um, but I'm not ready to give up on Jay Bruce. I've seen some people say, well, you know, pick up the option for a million bucks, let him go. You, you know, I don't know what Dilson Herrera is going to be, but you just gave up an asset on the, in the middle infield nonetheless for this guy. You've got to give him more than 60 days. I think Jay Bruce is still going to be here next year. Uh, I find it you know, a little unfair that he's getting booed. There's a lot of guys who should annoy Mets fans on this team before Jay Bruce. As a matter of 1-25, to I'd put Collins in the management team way before Jay Bruce, before I, 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 I blamed him for anything. Well, when you look at Jay Bruce, I mean, if you, if, if, if you want to know what you can let, – let's take this 75-at-bat stretch that he's had, give or take, since he was acquired at the trading deadline – and let's throw it out for argument's sake. What you're looking at, if you're looking for a model of what to expect from Jay Bruce, we already have one. And he's the Mets' first baseman who was injured early in the season and who we've largely forgotten about, who they could uh, they could choose to, to bring back next year, or they, they, could, uh, they could choose not to. And that's Lucas Duda. I mean, he, Jay Bruce is Lucas Duda in right field. He's, he's an incredible streak hitter. He's a guy who can get hot for a week and hit six or seven homers or a couple of weeks, and then he'll go into a funk for two, three, four weeks at a time. He's a one-dimensional player. He's a good player having a great season after having two horrible seasons. He was playing in a low-pressure environment in Cincinnati, there was no way that the Reds were going anywhere. So, so he, he, was, he was able to play on a small stage and for a last-place team in a strong division and to expect him to come to New York and be able to, at first, step in for Ioannis Cespedes was a little unrealistic to expect him to be Cespedes for the time Cespedes was out. But now that Cespedes is back, uh, and he's got protection in the lineup, the lineup's mostly healthy, uh, there's really no excuse for him not to be close to the point of turning it around and getting into one of these hot streaks. I'll live with the 75 uh, terrible at-bats that he's had so far with the Mets. I'll live with that if he can show me something else. But let's not forget that they have a year of Jay Bruce that they can do a number of things with. They can keep him, as you said, and they can look at him as a fixture in right field for next year. Or they can trade him because he's got a lot of trade value. If you put him to get, if you take a team that is starving for outfielders and you put Bruce and Granderson together and throw in someone like uh, Gavin Caccini, you could get a decent return on that. So they do have options with Bruce, which is the point of getting him. The point was to get a guy where they had options for 2017 to keep him or trade him and get some value back. But, I mean, Jay Bruce, 
you see why I was uh, highly unenthusiastic about the prospect of getting him last year. And let's not forget, they tried to get him, and it was only their failure to do so that that led to them getting um, Yoannis Cespedes. Right. Uh, so, right. And, and this, I'll tell you what, Tim. I'll tell you what. The, 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 what you just said about Jay Bruce goes back to where I, I said this is somewhat of a bully offense. I mean, they go out and they bludgeon the Phillies a couple of games in a row. Now, they've added some dynamics to their, their offense, like uh, Reyes, who I know for a fact Sandy Olison didn't want, and it was the ownership team that brought him on, that are less of that feast or famine. But you look up and down the lineup, Neil Walker is very streaky, Cabrera is very streaky. Uh, Cespedes is not as streaky, but can be very streaky as well. Not as many peaks and valleys. His, his, his valleys are, are not as bad. Granderson is a streaky guy. Deaza is a streaky guy. Uh, um, Bruce fits right in here, and that's where you get concerned because these valleys, how do, you, how do you score when the valleys, when everybody at times this year have been in the valley? You know that there's going to be a couple guys in the valley at all times. But you hope that if you are at peak, you never get like if you get eight guys on on all cylinders, then you start rolling. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen very often. And that's my concern. It's a bully offense. And 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 you mentioned Gavin Kishini. I mean, there's a guy who makes contact, gets on base. I don't know what's going to happen with Neil Walker, but he profiles somewhat somewhat better than as a second baseman, from what I've heard defensively. Not not the greatest at, at short. Uh, you know, maybe you got to go that route. As much as Neil Walker seems to be a good guy and has had a great season, maybe you need to diversify the offense. But historically, Sandy Olson, this is the kind of offense he believes, the 170-plus home runs, that he's going to want. And that's what we're going to see as long as he's general manager of the team. So we'll see where it brings us. You know, as, well, you, know, you, know I, you know, it seems to me, Mike, that, that the – the Mets theory of high on base percentage working deep into counts and working out a lot of walks and, and dealing with, with, with high on base percentage, which has famously been their organizational philosophy for some time. I mean, I think to some degree that was kind of exploded when they brought Joanna Cespedes over because the reason that Cespedes was third in line of the guys they wanted first, they wanted, Carlos Gomez, that didn't work out. Then they wanted to get Jay Bruce last year, and that didn't work out. The reason Cespedes was third in line was because he did not fit into the Mets organizational philosophy of a high on-base percentage, a guy that would hit homers, yes, but would draw a lot of walks, would have a patient approach at the plate. And when he came on the scene and hit 17 homers in 30 games and put them on a tear – that didn't end until the World Series, I think to some degree it kind of exploded that organizational philosophy. Now, look, Cespedes has been more patient this year. He's drawn a lot more walks. But the point remains that I don't really know, is this, is this really continue to be their organizational philosophy or not? Because certainly, I mean, Jay Bruce isn't that kind of player either. When they went to get him uh, this year, he's, he's not a patient a high on-base percentage guy, he's an all-or-nothing guy. I mean, in that sense, he's not like Duda. Duda draws a lot more walks. But he's, you know, he's more of a he, – he's an incredible streak hitter who goes through the kind of valleys that we've seen and which will probably lead to some peaks. 
that we hopefully will see in this last month or five weeks uh, of the season. But one wonders what what sort of enduring organizational philosophy there is in light of the fact that Cespedes uh, came in and seemed to change everything. And, you know, that leads me to my next point, which is uh, 2016, look, this is a long shot. You could get the second wild card. You could even win a a play-in game. You might be, I mean, you could possibly beat the Cubs in the first round. You could possibly go beyond that and beat the Giants or Dodgers or Nationals in the second round and go on to the World Series. I mean, that that's all possible. But going forward from here, uh, is what is it that they're looking for? How do they envision this offense? Because, I mean, if the, if the philosophy is to bludgeon people to death, uh, as they did in April, and which they've done most of the times that they've won this season, it's been with the long ball, then that's a very different philosophy than a, a patient, on-base percentage, advance the runners, move the runners around, but they've turned into an all-or-nothing team. I mean, how has this philosophy of home runs or bust worked for them this year? Not so well. It hasn't, and it does play into what, you know, this was, uh, uh, as we bring to maybe my uh, my final point here as we uh, head to wrapping this thing up, was that Cespedes did make some news. I mean, it seemed like he, and whether it was a, a language barrier or caught in the moment, said to Matt Aholt, of, uh, uh, who beat reporter who covers the uh, the, the team, and uh, Matt Aholt basically said, you know, do you want to come back? He says, I'm going to fulfill my three-year commitment, and that became news. Well, he's not opting out, and then he backtracked because his representation probably said, well, you don't want to make that kind right. of statement. You don't want to commitment. say that. You don't want to say <laughs> that. You lose some money. But it's almost hard. Like, it's a little tricky because part of me says at times, and you've seen that, you know, there's no early in the year. He didn't want to slide, and now he's the quad. He's not playing today. Was that the Mets? Was that Cespedes? Is he going to go full out? I mean, he's a little mercurial at times. He plays golf. Um, you know, you have this constant whispering of, of motivation on a long-term deal. It would be foolish for the Mets just to say, hey, take a walk after he opted out. He's too oh, dynamic no, a, of a player. That, too dynamic that'd be a, of a player. Just that'd be a disaster, Mike. I mean, look. I don't know how they're, I, they're not, you know, look, Jose Bautista, you know, maybe, the, you know, to the, find this kind of power combination is not going to be easy. Now, you could go and, you know, this is an arrogant front office at times, and they think that they could take two players and uh, do their value equation and find the same production assessments. But like last night, what you saw, and this is where I got getting him into the Piazza and, and Strawberry comparison. He was up there. He honed in. He hit a home run when they needed it. He soared against Adam Wainwright a few weeks ago, even though that game ended a bit poorly. So to answer your, your statement or your question, where do they go, I think it all depends on Cespedes. Because if you're going to have a lineup of Conforto and Bruce – and Lagaris in center, or maybe even Granderson coming off the bench if they can't deal him. You got a lot of shaky, guy, uh, streaky guys out there, um, and you're going to be here, and you and I are going to have a podcast at some point next year, and you're going to be saying, "Geez, they need, they need that hub," and that hub walked out the door. So it's 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 kind of a catch twenty two. I understand the mercurial mercurial part of Cespedes. Um, I don't know how true any of that stuff is. I'm not around the guy. You know, the, the golf thing, I know how that annoys people. But this is not a – it's not just the dollars and cents. 
And even from a player standpoint, it's not an easy situation because you bring him I back. Don't. It's clumsy now. The outfield is clumsy unless you can deal Granderson. Well, look, they 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 simp- It's very simple. They simply have to sign Cespedes beyond this year. I'm assuming he's going to opt out. But what they need to do, and I don't know whether he and his agent are open to this, they need to work right now on extending his current deal for two more years. That would I don't guarantee- think the Mets are open to it. I think it's the Mets. I don't know if it's the agent. I bet you the agent would do it. I think the Mets don't want to do it. At least my well, opinion. Can, not that I, I have proof I can, of that. I can tell you this much for sure. If they let him walk, uh, there's going to be a fan uprising and a fan revolt uh, like we haven't seen since Tom Seaver was traded in 1977. I mean, maybe well, I'm let me throw this maybe out to you, Tim. Not a little, but I don't think so. They have to sign Cespedes. There's simply no option at this point. He is their offense. I mean, he is. He has single-handedly carried the team uh, on his back to a record of two games over 500. If it wasn't, for, imagine where they would be without him oh, this year. And I was one who, you know, I thought that Diazza and Lagaris might work out reasonably well platooning in center field. Uh, But imagine, imagine if Cespedes wasn't with them this year. I mean, when we get into the offseason, there's all kinds of tinkering. Do you bring back Loney? Uh, Do you non-tender Lucas Duda? What do you do at second base? Do you you re-sign a walker or not? Can David Wright contribute anything? Can Travis Darnot... Can he finally break through, or do you trade him? Do you get for a veteran guy like a Lucra? All of these questions are important, but they all pale in comparison to whether they bring Cespedes back or not. That is the single biggest question of the offseason, and I'm telling you that if they let Cespedes go, it will be a grave mistake. Because right, and proven. you know what? They almost they almost lost him. I remember, look, there was rumors that the Nats were about to get him, and you didn't yep. see that uprising this offseason, and it probably would have been quelled a bit because of the, the pennant that they had. And, uh, you know, you got a lot of Sandy acolytes out there that, that, that anything Sandy says they'll believe. Um, but you're right. Um, but it is a tricky spot because Conforto really has no spot in a Bruce Cespedes outfield because I think one of the reasons Cespedes has leg problems, is they've asked him to play. Center field is a very demanding position, a position where, you know, he said he didn't want to play it when he came here, and then he said, I'll do what I got to do to help the team win. Uh, you know, I, I think that's where it gets clumsy. And, and, and in a lot of ways, and I talked about this last week and a and, and, uh, week before, you know, Conforto's future may not be here because if you do sign Cespedes to a five-year deal, uh, you know, maybe he spends a year in the minors again. I don't know what their plans are from next year because Jay Bruce is only here another year. But with Jay Bruce Cespedes, uh, unless you put Conforto in center, and I have a lot of questions about that, your Conforto future is certainly questioned with Cespedes here on a long-term deal. That's the only thing well, to think about. I do think, though, and and Cespedes has been resistant to this. For what reason, I don't really know. But the natural spot for Cespedes is right field because he has the only strong arm on the team. He's got an excellent arm. He's got a strong arm. He's got an accurate arm. If they can convince him that right field is the spot for him, then that opens up all kinds of things. 
Now, that means, of course, you trade Jay Bruce, which is fine with me. I mean, somebody will take him. He's worth something for a year to somebody, especially if he's packaged up, like I said earlier, with a couple of the other players that are uh, expendable in one form or another. Uh, Cespedes, I'd like to see him for another four or five years in right field. Now, I don't know why he's so resistant to playing right field, but let's be honest. For a guy with his skills in the outfield and his arm and his accuracy, right field is where he should be playing. Now, he's never played right field, and I don't know why it is. Maybe because he's a gold glove and left and he doesn't want to uh, reduce his ability by playing one of the other outfield positions. But there's no question, if they sign him again, it's not going to be to play center field. We know that much. He's not going to play center he obviously is of gold glove quality and left. He won the gold glove in the American League last year, and he didn't even play there the last two months of the season. But where they need him to land really is in right field, and I still don't understand, and I'd love to see the reason why, if he can explain it or is willing to go into it, why Cespedes is so resistant to playing right field. Well, listen, Tim, uh, we've got to wrap up here, but what do you got coming up? Anything you want to let the listeners know about at MetsMarinesOnline.com? Give them everything they need to know about Tim Donner and what they could expect over the next few weeks. Well, uh, hopefully they can expect a lot of jubilant uh, columns in, in, in MetsMarized celebrating one exciting win after another. Uh, but for the next five weeks, I mean, this is, Let's face it, Mike, even though, you know, we're well, two and a half games out of a second wild card, whatever, this is the time of year where you start looking at the scores of other teams. Now, last year it was really just the Nationals, right, because we were, we were behind the Nationals and we were ahead of the Nationals. We wanted to stay ahead of the Nationals. So you came to late August and you were watching the Nationals score every day. You know, now – the good part of going for a wild card where there's several teams in it is you've got to look at the Marlins score. You've got to look at the Cardinals score. You've got to look at the Pirates score. You've got to look at the Giants and the Dodgers score because that race isn't settled, and the team that doesn't win the national is no, not a definite lock for the wild card. So, I mean, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be spending the next five weeks not just watching the Mets but watching these four other teams, and that by itself kind of makes it – Really interesting, doesn't it? Absolutely. That's what this is all about. Tim, as always, a pleasure. I'm sure we'll do it again before the season's out. Be well and uh, appreciate it, uh, a generous amount of time here on a weekend with you. The pleasure is mine, as always, Mike. Anytime, place. You got it. Have a great Sunday. That's uh, Tim Donner. Check him out at MetsMorizedOnline.com. Hey, going to wrap up? Quick break. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be right back. Hey, Mets fans, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. MetsmerizedOnline is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. 
Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, Online.com, and get Metsmerized today. We're back. Final thoughts here. Hope everybody's had a great uh, Sunday here and uh, really appreciate Tim Donner. We got through a lot of topics. So, um, as always, continue to go to MetsmerizedOnline.com uh, for uh, for the program. You can check me out on iTunes, SoundCloud, and you can send me a, uh, a tweet at MetsmerizedOnline.com. Of course, I want to thank Tim Donner for contributing to the show, and uh, you can check him also out at MetsmerizedOnline.com. And I want to thank and give credit to SNY for the great clips that we were able to play earlier in the program. So I'm your host, Mike Silva. Have a great Sunday. I'll see you next week. The ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.